The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks for gathering us here today to sing, praise, pray, and now listen to your word. It's a gift that you've given us, and we say thank you for it, and are so bold and confident as to ask you for even more. Will you not just give us your word, but will you give us your spirit to press your word into our hearts and make us like you? Please do that, Lord. We, we need his work in us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So make the word clear, press it into us and change us, grow us up, and bring honor to your name. That's our hope. Help us to think the subject before us this morning, Lord, can be maybe difficult for us, depending on where we are in life. Help us to think about it well, carefully, clearly, and, and to actually rest in you to rest in you with this subject. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for fulfilling all your promises and for being good and for hearing prayer and answering. We trust ourselves to you now. Thank you. Amen. This morning we return to the book of 2 Timothy, picking up where we left off way back before the season of Advent. This letter of 2 Timothy, you'll recall, is written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Timothy who is a young ministry partner of his and at the time of the writing was pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus and the church there was a difficult place to be. It was a, it was a hard city and a challenged church. And so there was a great need for faithful gospel ministry. And so the last passage that we looked at, this is at the end of November, very beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, in that passage, Paul strongly addressed Timothy with a long list of commands. We heard some of them repeated this morning as, as was prayed through. But he urged him to preach the Bible, to use it consistently and carefully for what God means for it to be about, for it to do. God's given his word to correct and encourage and rebuke and teach. It's God's word, it's God's wisdom and God's instruction to the world and we all need it. People need it. And so Timothy was, was sent and then was charged here to present God's word, to make it clear both inside the church and outside of the church, to make the gospel about how God saves by grace in Christ, to make that clear everywhere. And so verse 5 ended, Timothy, as for you, such and such and such and such, fulfill your ministry. Because God sent you, because people need it, and also, this is what connects us to our passage for today in verse 6, there's this contrasting emphasis between 5 and 6. You, as for you, fulfill your ministry because, for, beginning of verse 6, as for me, I'm out. Paul is passing on the ministry baton, if you will, to, to Timothy, his young partner, you have to fulfill your ministry, Timothy, because you're there, people need it, and I'm not going to be here. Paul's addressing 
this man from the context of his own impending death. And he speaks about his death and his life and his future in our passage today. And how he does that, apart from just the context of wanting to pass on the ministry baton to Timothy, he talks about these subjects in a way that is actually very helpful for us as we live in this world and as we carry whatever ministry baton it is that God's assigned to you and I. So we're going to look at what he says in verses 6 through 8, thinking about death and life in the future. And I hope then that as, as we look at this, that what God does with it is he, he presents something to us, I think, which is sobering, not crushing, sobering, and then really hopeful. So that's what I, I think God will make clear to us today. Verses 6 through 8. Let me read it, and then I'll draw out three observations. This is from 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4. I'm going to make three observations. Here's the first. A wise Christian considers death and reckons this life as temporary. A wise Christian considers death and reckons this life as temporary. Verse 6, Paul's talking about his current situation. Recall that he is in prison in Rome at the time of this writing. He's imprisoned there because of his Christian faith and ministry. Now, he's been in danger before a lot in his life. He's been in jail a bunch so this is not unique in itself, but what's different about this now is that he knows he's not getting out. He's going to be executed, and he's certain of that. He pictures this cup of wine, picture a cup of wine being poured out as an allusion to the Old Testament system of sacrifices and offerings where, where part of some, some of those sacrifices involved a, a wine, a drink offering being poured out. He knows that's going on right now. He's in the process of being poured out. The time of my departure has come. He's looking at his own death as if he's right in the middle of the process of dying. Facing the fact of it for himself. Not just acknowledging the fact of it for people in general. If you ask any one of us, do people die? Sure, of course, everybody dies. Uh-huh. More than that, Paul's saying, I am dying as I speak. He's considering it for himself and reasoning from it. Now, as I mentioned, one of the reasons he's doing this is that he wants to talk to Timothy about passing the ministry baton onto him. So there's that there, yes. But the general point I'm trying to make is that how he talks about death, he's looking squarely at it, clear-eyed. And in fact, he often does this. If you were just to, to kind of quickly skim through Paul's writings, maybe Philippians would come to mind for you. To live is Christ, to die is gain, and I'd rather die and be with the Lord. Maybe 2 Corinthians 5 would come to mind where Paul talks about being away from the body and with the Lord and considers the judgment that comes at that point. 
often, Paul's very close. Paul stays very close to death, always. The only thing unique about here right now is that he knows death is here. It's imminent. So he's looking squarely at his own imminent death, and he describes it in a way that that reminds us of the temporary nature of life. Look how he describes this here. Two different pictures. A cup being poured out. You can visualize that. How long does it take to pour out a cup? Whatever size you want. It doesn't doesn't take very long to pour out a cup. You see the the first rush and then the last little drizzle and then drop, drop, and it's empty. It doesn't take very long. And then he calls his death here a departure whose time has come. Death isn't an end for him. He knows this isn't an end. that I'm just going on to somewhere else. I'm departing. I've been a sojourner here. We are all sojourners here on earth. This is just where we live temporarily. And the time soon comes when we all pull up our tent stakes and move on to somewhere else. At the time that the Lord determines. And there is a time. He has appointed the times and places where every one of us live, when every one of us lives, and he's fixed a time that is our time when that comes to an end. And that time is coming for each of us, for you, inexorably, irresistibly, mysteriously, but certainly. It's on the calendar already. What's the average life expectancy in the U.S. today? Well, it goes back and forth, depending on what year and lots of demographics. Roughly late 70s. Let's make it 80 to keep the math simple. Roughly speaking, then, 40 is halftime in life. The fourth quarter begins at age 60. Now, I know I'm speaking in averages here, so you may live to 95 or 35. No one knows except the Lord who has fixed the time when it is your time. You already have a return flight booked, and it's coming for every single one of us. Not for us, for me and for you. That's the way it is. And the wise person, the wise Christian like Paul, thinks about that fact and reckons it as true for me and for you. And reasons then out from it and considers something then about this time, this time before the departure date, and realizes this is not very long. It is fleeting. This life is short, and and especially what it tells us, when, when you know there's a date on the calendar when you're leaving, you know that everything leading up to then is temporary. I don't know how long it is until your time, but I know that every moment of this time is just temporary, not lasting. 
This is not permanent. You must soon depart and move on to somewhere else. We in modern America do not do well with this reality. At all. Frankly, we don't do with this reality at all, if we can at all help it. We don't talk about death very much. We certainly don't talk about it in sobering ways. In an odd way, we are extremely, extremely flooded with images of death. Our movies are full of death. Our video games are full of death. Our news is full of boasting about the death of our enemies. But the death of ourselves or our friends, talked about in some sobering way, not with cliche, not with joke, but in a, a real sober way, we don't do that. I'm not that old. I'm in the third quarter of life, maybe. But I, I grew up at a time and in a place where funerals were casket present and usually open, and we saw dead bodies. That doesn't happen anymore. We've removed that mostly from our culture as well. People just kind of seem to leave. We're not confronted with it. Now, I'm not trying to make a statement about is that right or wrong. I'm just saying it is. It was, I, I remember looking at dead people, and it does something to you. It confronts you. We, we, we do all we can to avoid that and remove it from our lives, and we try to stay young and imagine that we'll live forever. We're trying to you know, avoid the, the gray hair and the, the dimming eyesight. Do we not all dress younger? Do we not all speak younger? We want to stay young forever. And we think we are by using the slang of teenagers. A great problem with that, there are a number of problems, but a great problem with that is that our priorities and our values easily get turned upside down. Avoiding death and refusing to look at it and think about it and reason from it that I am going to die means that when I put that away, it means that I subtly think I'm actually going to live forever. And everything that's in the here and now is permanent, not temporary and must be grasped and held onto and protected. This is never going away so that it can be and should be and must be actually maximized in the here and now and must be protected in the here and now and lived for in the here and now. I can and really should build a kingdom for the here and now to be enjoyed in the here and now as if the here and now isn't ever going away. We're confused about that. We're not really confused about that. Yeah, we are. We're not natives here. We're tourists. This is all temporary. Now, I do very, very, very much believe we were made to and should know joy in this life, but it's not the joy of living for this life. It's the joy of living in this life for something else. We'll talk about that in a little bit, I think. The joy of using this life 
so that when it's poured out, when, not if, when it's poured out, it actually is. Paul deliberately grabs an image here. Paul doesn't use something poured out as a waste. He uses something poured out as an offering of worship. So that when my life is poured out, it actually is an offering of worship to the Lord. That would be joyful. To live that life now would be joyful and joyful forever. A life lived here that looks beyond what's here and stops banking on what's here and thinks about what's coming. A wise Christian, so brothers and sisters, I urge you, take this on. Take on this perspective of Paul, this perspective that he wanted Timothy to grasp and all of us. I'm passing through. My time is coming. This is temporary. And I want to live so that this, when the last drop's shaken out, praise be to the Lord. How did Paul say that was true of his life? Well, because of what he says in verse 7, the second point. But before we go there, I want to put a little caveat on the side here because it's possible that you are deep in the fourth quarter of your life and you're thinking, my life, I'm, I'm shaking the last few drops out of the cup and it has not been. Praise be to the Lord. And I have a feeling that what you're going to talk about, uh, Paul did, I didn't. And so what you're kind of doing is I'm ready for the condemnation to come here because I have failed. Okay, hit me. What do we do with that? Well, we got to do two things and be honest with both of these things. The first thing we have to say is the gospel is true. Thank God. So you can look at it and say, I failed. Jesus covers my sin and failure, and I'm forgiven. And I will stand in glory with the Lord. And, we've got to say that honestly and true, and then we've got to go over here and say, and the wood, hay, and stubble will burn up. That's in the Bible, too. He's speaking about ministers, particularly in that context, but the principle applies to all of us. We need to hold both these things true. I am forgiven. The gospel is true. But the whole point of commanding and teaching and exhorting and all these things is so that when we come to this point, it's not all wood, hay, and stubble. So you may be in the fourth quarter, but the clock has not expired yet. You may be in the first quarter, the second quarter. There is still a word from the Lord saying, Here's what life is meant to be. Here's how you should pursue the Lord. Here's what it would be to pour out an offering. And you could say, in the last two minutes of my time here, make the last few drops, Lord. Help. That's what I want to be. So hear it not in condemnation. The gospel is true. But hear it for what it actually is. Because obedience is true. And God calls us to walk with him. And once lives lived for him. Hear both of those things here. As we move to the second point. This text.
contemporary Christian life is one of dependent perseverance through difficulty. This temporary Christian life is one of dependent perseverance through difficulty. Verse 7, in the middle of his dying, Paul looks back at his life. How can I say that my life is being poured out right now as an honoring act of worship to God? Well, because of what my life has been. Verse 7. Three statements. And if you look at them, they're all written, they're grammatically parallel. They're all written very similarly. And they each emphasize something that's a little different. But there's a lot of overlap. And a common thread that I'm going to be leaning on later. common thread runs through all of them. We express them in English and as according to our English custom, we put subject, verb, object, I have, I have, that actually accidentally puts too much emphasis in the wrong place, as if it emphasizes what Paul did, what Paul did, and makes Paul a hero. Paul actually wrote this in reverse to put the emphasis on the respective necessary activities, not on his, his accomplishing. So they're actually flipped around. The good fight, I fought. Which fight? The good fight, that one, that's the fight. The full race course, I finished. That's what I ran and finished. The faith, that's what I kept. Three statements about the activities of this life. Each a little different, but they have a lot of overlap to them. The good fight, or more literally, the good struggle or the good striving. The language would fit military context as well as athletic context because it's really about some sort of a setting in which there is opposition and contesting that makes your path not easy. It certainly describes Paul's life, certainly describes the Christian life here in this fallen world. Jesus said, in this world we will have trouble. Paul taught the churches everywhere that we must pass through tribulation in this life on the way to heaven. It's just what is. And that can be disconcerting. There's always something in us, and I think probably in America today this is very dominant in us, there's always something in us that expects that there should be some sort of, of spot that we get to where it's easygoing. Maybe it's a rough patch, but I, when I, I get to the spot where it's just, I can cruise. Because, after all, this is a, a land of plenty and abundance, and God is God and he reigns. And shouldn't there be some sort of general acceptance of Christian truth in this land with such a Christian heritage? And isn't he a God of blessing? And we expect more than we should. We live in a fallen world, and we're beginning to discover that the very brief, unique, temporary perspective of this country, where there was, where there was some like unique Christian presence in this land, that was, that was for a unique period of time. That was not normal for the world or for history. We're kind of reverting back to the norm. We much more resemble the New Testament now than we did 50 years ago. We live in a place where the exclusive claims of Jesus are not honored and accepted, where the morals and the values and the truths of the scriptures taught are not embraced, where there is no special favored status for Christians. 
That's how the Bible reads, and that's beginning to be how our world reads, and we should expect that, but we don't. We think there should be, if Jesus is king, then he should reign, and he should make things right, right now. Not the case. Paul sits in a prison cell about to be executed, and we sit in a world that does not agree. And it's easy to think, did I go wrong somewhere? If I misunderstood something, this is the good fight, he says. This is the right fight, the right struggle. And it is a struggle. Uphill, all the way, until the end. That's normal. Paul fought all his life like Jesus fought all his life. And it doesn't say anything about winning. It says fighting all the way until he fell. That's the Christian life. Don't give up. Contend. Strive. Run. The second analogy. A race course, the whole race course finished. There's a race laid out before all of us. And Paul probably is referring to the ministry calling that he has. It's how he uses this language elsewhere in the book of Acts. He's got some sort of a, of a ministry calling put in front of him that he has run all the way to the end. So we too should think about not just standing in a, in a culture and facing all the difficulties of the life, but we also should think about, and that means there's a ministry aspect here in this culture that is going to be long and hard. Don't get distracted and veer off course. Run the race. Keep the faith. To keep, to guard, to hold tight to, not just faith in general, the faith, the truth of the gospel. A theme he's touched on often in this book. It might be easy to run, it might be easier to run the race of ministry if I let go of the actual content of the message. I can be about serving people if it's not actually about the gospel of Jesus and his cross. No, you've, we've got to run the race keeping the faith holding tight to these core gospel truths and standing on the Bible in belief of it, not just formally with my words, but actually lived out in my life. The good fight fought, the whole race finished, the truth of God's word and God's gospel embraced and kept. These are obviously big phrases with not much detail in them, and they overlap quite a bit, and Paul's point is, that's how I lived, and so that's how I'm dying well. I contended all the way to the end. I ran all the way to the end. I held tight to the truth all the way to the end. Not just formally, but lived out, spoken and lived. Now, obviously, that's what Paul lived. That's what Paul commends to Timothy. And it would, it would profit us probably to spend some more time diving into each one of those things to think, well, where am I tempted to, to veer off course? What am I tempted to let go of in the teaching of the Scripture? There are always certain things that, that we are challenging. And it might be worth thinking about that a little bit, but I'm not going to. 
Because what I want to do is I'm going to grab the common element that runs through all three of these things and think about that. Dependent perseverance through difficulty. He describes his life in these three analogies here as work. As work. As hard. Pressing through it. Independence. Think about this first. This is, this is important. I love the song that we sang earlier. I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. I will keep the faith by grace and grace alone. There's the by grace and grace alone, the dependence piece, beautiful in that song, central to Paul's life and Paul's teaching here. These, these exhortations, these encouragements, they sit in a context. You may recall, if you were to flip back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, you'd see some similar language there of a soldier and an athlete running and fighting. And Paul there commands Timothy and all of us to, to be a faithful soldier. Where does that come from? What context does that sit in? Well, chapter 2, verse 1, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He does not mean for us to, to fight the fight and run the race and hold the faith in our own strength and our own skill and our own ability, but in fact, dependent on the grace of God. There's a tall order laid out here, but there is great help offered here. God, by grace, will help. So we turn to him and we depend on him. Left to ourselves, we would fail, but dependent on him, we can run, we can fight, we can keep. So there's a Godward dependence that is the context around these, these verses, but the point simply must be acknowledged. This is hard. This is hard. Are you ready for this? This life. Think of a football analogy. In football, the running back is the player that's handed the football behind the, the line and then runs through and is often tackled. Paul's picturing you as a running back for your entire life. Handed the ball, hit, tackled, handed the ball, hit, tackled, handed the ball, hit, tackled, years. Are you ready for that? We don't think that's right. We think we should throw the ball every now and then. Come on. I should get a breather. I should get out. Come on. No, your life, here's the ball. Don't drop it. Keep it. Run through contact Till you die. That's the normal Christian life. 
because you're a Christian in a world that isn't. Are you ready for that? There is no long-term ease. There is no place of arriving at now I can take a break and now I can sit down and put my feet up. There is no place for that here in this world. Verse 8 is coming. In the passage, verse 8 is coming. But in verse 7, there is no place for that. Are you ready for it? He's given you the ball and you must keep the faith. By grace and grace alone. But you must keep it. Don't fumble. And he's called you to run by grace and grace alone. But you have to put foot in front of foot. And you've got to endure and strive against the contact by grace and grace alone. But it's going to hit you. I'm not up for that. I didn't sign up for anything hard. Then you miss the Christian life. The Christian life is this. That's what it is. All the way through, and it stops at the end. That's verse 7's main point. He's not saying he won. He's saying he finished. I fought all the way till the end. I ran all the way to the end. I kept it all the way till the end my whole life. That would be very, 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 very challenging if there was not, by grace and grace alone, and if this was not a temporary life. But it is temporary. And he is a God of grace. And there is something else that's coming. Which leads to the third point. Our eternal reward comes when Christ comes to raise us from the grave. Our eternal reward comes when Christ comes to raise us from the grave, not before. Verse 8, having ended his reflection on the life of perseverance, verse 7, He's crossed the finish line, so to speak. He's back in his jail cell in the process of dying. The race is finished. Henceforth there awaits for me execution, death. What hopelessness. No, that's what he says. That's coming. That's a door onto something else. Henceforth there awaits for me, there is laid up for me, reserved for me, the crown of righteousness which is not a crown like we sometimes think of with like kings and queens. It's, it's a crown, an athlete's laurels. Again, same context back in chapter 2. talks about the, the runner being crowned. It's like the, the ancient equivalent of a gold medal or a trophy. Given to Paul, awarded to him on that day because he finished. On that day. Day, the day of judgment when Christ, the righteous judge, comes to set all the world right. 
in everyone and everything, every question, every struggle, every difficulty will be made right because he is the righteous judge and does what is right and can be counted on to do what he has said he will do, counted on to bring what he said he would bring. And he will rightly award to Christians, to Paul, to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, this isn't just me, it's for all Christians, all who have loved his appearing. He's going to bring something on that day when he comes. Crown of righteousness. What is that? Well, it's not just right standing before the Lord. You already have that. If you're a Christian, Paul's a Christian, he's writing to Christians. If you're a Christian, part of the faith that you're holding is exactly that very righteousness, the, the standing in righteousness that comes because I have trusted Christ's cross and he has put on me, he's credited to my account, righteousness in the eyes of God. I am a sinner, but I am counted as righteous. I stand righteous as a Christian right now. That's not coming. I already have that. Because I have that, something more is coming. This crown of righteousness is more. Not just standing in righteousness, actual, functional, internal, and external righteousness. My condition, what I am, not how I'm counted, what I am. You will be raised from the grave, made new to sin no more, ever, forever. Glorified, holy, pure, spotless, delivered to be what you were made originally to be, the perfect image of God. Properly, truly, fully, completely human. Right. Righteous. Unmarred and untainted, sharing in his nature. This is our great reward. It is very precious if you have eyes to see it. All the difficulty that you and I deal with now in this world, all the fighting, all the contending, all the running, all the need to keep, all the hitting, all of that... The Lord descends, he, he appears, he comes, he wipes away all of that from the world all around us. And even then inside of you, Christian, even wipes it out of you such that everything that was in you, that all that you've known, the full existence that you've ever known, you've only known a struggle inside of your mind. God says, but I think, God calls me to, but I long for, that goes away and you are inside perfectly whole and right and every thought, and every word, and every feeling, and every desire, and every inclination is holy, 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 and after the Lord. And you are beautiful inside the image of God. That is the most precious thing. I find as I, I preach that to myself, and I find myself saying like, oh, really? Really? And then I go back around and say, Oh, even that would be gone then. Even that doubt, that question of really. 
I get caught my, caught my own mental loop there. Oh, Christian. Can you imagine? No, no, you can't, I know. But can you imagine? Can you imagine the process of making you a pure, spotless bride done? All temptation over. All, all inclination towards evil removed. All struggling with, with angst and, and emptiness and, and loneliness and gone because you truly value the beautiful one and he is present with you and you then pour out his perfect love experience in you, not tainted, marred, or held back. You then pour it out perfectly to those around you. And what happens then is we become a people pure and holy and beautiful. Can you imagine that? When he gives to you and me and all of us the crown of righteousness and we are made perfect. I can't imagine it. And I certainly can't describe it. This is pathetic. <laughs> I, I mean that honestly. I tried to write out a description of this, and I thought, oh, this is pathetic. This is pathetic. <laughs> and my ability to present it is pathetic. It pales. Eden restored, actually, on steroids, if you read the end of Revelation. It's not just Eden, it's Eden on steroids. And you and I there with him. Oh, the fellowship, the communion of the saints with Jesus himself. When he comes, when he appears, we who have been sown into the ground mortal will be raised immortal, says Paul at the end of Corinthians. We who have been sown into the ground sinners will be raised pure. We have been sown into the ground hateful and spiteful and resentful and selfish. We'll be raised loving and generous and gracious and kind. You and everyone that you know in all of the world. And that's when ease will come because you'll be a Christian in Christ's kingdom. And there will be no more but just peace. an end of all of our strivings and strugglings, an end of our running, and an end of our fighting, and an end of our holding on, when this temporary life passes away and we die, and we are sown into the ground, and when he appears, we are raised immortal, righteous. Do you love his appearing? Because that's what he brings when he comes. Do you long for that? Check yourself. Or do you say, that's nice, but really what I want is I want this now to be different. Check that. Check that. I want this now to be different too. And I pray for that. And I live for that. And, and I know that fundamentally, maybe I'll gain three yards on this carry, but not five. Because the world's fallen. And our real hope is his appearing. Do you love his appearing, Christian? Do you love his appearing? This life we live now is temporary. We are going to die. Reason out from that then and realize 
until my death, I am to live faithful through the hardship, hoping not in the end now, but in the end at the end. The end of all of our struggles, the end of all of our strivings, when he appears and we are made new. Bless the Lord. This is what he has promised, that he will come and be with us as our God, with we as his people. Let me pray. Lord, I have, I have complete certainty that I have not done justice to what you're going to do. So my request now, Father, is that you would, in the hearts of your people here, that you would pick up the crumbs that I scattered here and that you would breathe on them and make them live in the hearts and minds of your people and create a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness, not just now, but for the righteousness that you bring. Please do that in your people by your Spirit. Cause us to long for and love the day of your coming. And use the certainty then to fuel hope in us now as we look at a hard life followed by death. You are good. Your promises are not small or weak. They're just not right now. Give us hope. And maybe, Lord, there are some here that need particular hope. Remind them that the gospel is true. Move your people then to walk with you in faith with whatever uncertain amount of time we have left here in this short life, this temporary moment. We're yours. We look to you in dependence and need. Thank you for being faithful. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.